You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Good morning, church. My name is Joanna and I'll be reading the Bible for us today. Um, We will be reading Genesis 34. Before we read together, let us pray together for God's help and presence. Let's pray. Father God, we remember that you are our refuge, our strength, and our hope, our ever-present help in trouble. You are close to your people. You see and know each and every one of us here. And we pray for your Spirit's help and guidance as we journey through this difficult passage together. You are our God who sympathizes and empathizes with the brokenness of this world. You do not shy away from it. When we find healing, encouragement, and hope in Jesus, despite the brokenness and darkness that we may face in this life. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 34. Leah's daughter, Dina, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, who was a region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter Dina. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Get me this girl as a wife, he told his father. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dina. But since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. Meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamor, came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident. They were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. Hamor said to Jacob's sons, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here, move about, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dina's father and brothers, Grant me this favor, and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and gift. I'll give you whatever you ask me. Just give the girl to be my wife. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister, Dina. We cannot do this thing, they said to them. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are, then we will give you our daughters, Take your daughters for ourselves, live with you, and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Their words seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most important in all his father's family. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. These men are peaceful toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it, 
for indeed, the region is large enough for them. Let's take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition. If all our men are circumcised as they are, won't their livestock, their possessions, and all the animals become ours? Only let's agree with them and they will live with us. All the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and all those men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dina from Shechem's house, and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because the sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my, I and my household will be destroyed. But they answered, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Why, um, why a passage like that on the eve before Christmas? It'd be easy uh, to not address it, wouldn't it? It'd be easy to preach on something happier, uh, to choose a passage that would be different. Other than the mere fact that we're going through this as a series, why a passage like that at a time like this? Because you see, for, Chris, for many people, Christmas really is a very happy and a positive time of the year, isn't it? For many people, it's a time we spend with our family and our friends, a time of holidays and festivities, a season of endless food, gifts, and laughter. But for many other people, and maybe some of you here, Christmas is actually a really difficult time of the year. It's actually that time of the year that we dread more than any other, the time where we feel most lonely waiting for an invitation that never comes. It's actually a season of grief and sadness and loss. But I think what makes Christmas even harder for many people is the vast gulf between what is and what ought to be. We feel all alone, but then when we see all those happy friends and families gather for that Christmas meal without us, our grief feels so much deeper, doesn't it? That's almost the shadow of Christmas, the gap between what is and what ought to be. And to be honest, I think actually that's the grief of so many of our lives. The gap between what is and what ought to be. Homes that ought to be safe, but end up as places of harm. People who ought to love us become people who somehow end up hurting us. And sometimes even when it comes to God, it can feel like our lives ought to be better and more blessed with Him. But why then are our lives still so painful, so lonely, so cursed? 
You see, friends, that gap between what is and what ought to be is exactly what we witness in that awfully shocking passage. When we read about what happens to Dina, we think to ourselves, it shouldn't have to be that way. Especially when we think about what's just happened. I mean, Jacob had just reconciled with his brother after 20 long years. Jacob had finally submitted to the God he'd been fighting his whole life. Last week's chapter ended with Jacob setting up an altar and calling it God, the God of Israel. Friends, it was a perfect ending. The Christmas story of God and sinner reconciled. Why then is such a fairy tale ending followed by such a tragic nightmare? Why is it that the true fairy tale of a life with Jesus is so often marred by the evil of our world? Why is it that after we see such a beautiful picture of gospel reconciliation that we now see such an abhorrent evil? But you see, friends, even at the end of the last chapter, evil was already lurking in the shadows. You see, after reconciling with Esau, Jacob promised that he would go back with his brother to Seir. And all the way back in chapter 31, verse 3, God had told him, go back to the land of your ancestors and to your family. That's not what Jacob did. He settled in a place called Succoth. He camped in front of the city of Shechem, and he bought a plot of land from the sons of Hamor. You see, instead of obeying God's call to return to his family, Jacob settles down far from home. It almost reminds us of Lot, who camped in front of Sodom and ended up living in the city itself. You see, friends, even at this early stage, evil is lurking in the shadows. And then in chapter 34... It rears its ugly head. Dina, Jacob's only daughter, goes out to see some of the young women of the area. And out of nowhere, Shechem sees her, takes her, and rapes her. They're shocking words, aren't they? It's so direct. So confronting, so chilling, it's, it's like we're almost stunned into silence at such an abhorrent evil. But we need to feel it. He saw her. He took her. And he raped her. You see, friends, those words he saw and he took, they're the same words that we find back in Genesis 3 when Eve saw that the tree was good for food and took some of its fruit and ate it. And that's the nature of sin, isn't it? We see what we want, we take what we want, even if it's someone else. Friends, Dina has done nothing wrong. She is the innocent victim of Shechem's lust and violence. He has taken everything from her. And now he wants to take her. Because in verse 3, Shechem becomes infatuated with Dina and he tells his father, get this girl as a wife or literally take her for me. I think what's hard about this passage beyond everything that's there is I shudder to think of how I'd feel if Dina was my daughter. 
I'd be so grief-stricken. To be honest, I'd be angry. I mean, wouldn't you? I'd want to hurt the man who hurt my girl. I'd want to curse him and tell him to go to hell. Look at what this father does. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Verse 5 says he remained silent. Just like Adam in Genesis 3, Jacob is passive in the face of a great evil. And friends, it's awful. Here are two men, Adam and Jacob, who, who, who abdicate their God-given authority as husband and father, who fail to love the women they swore to protect. This is an abhorrent evil compounded by a tragic failure of leadership. And in verse 17, his brothers come home. They hear about what's happened to their little sister, and they are deeply grieved and very angry. And friends, can I say, so they should be. This is a righteous anger, a holy outrage, a godly grief at an abhorrent evil committed against an innocent woman. Throughout the Bible, anger is not normally or ordinarily commended by God, but in this case, it is. Verse 7 couldn't be clearer. Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. You see, friends, we, we, we balk at the presence of this passage, don't we? It's as if we recoil as the Bible recounts such an abhorrent evil in such chilling terms. But the Bible does not shy away from the reality of evil in our world. It's uncomfortably honest about what some men and so many women suffer in our world today. And it's almost as if this passage is forcing us to confront the reality of sexual abuse and violence all around us. One in six women in Australia have experienced some form of physical or sexual violence by an intimate partner. One in five women have experienced sexual violence at the hands of just anyone. And on average, one woman every nine days is killed by an intimate partner as well. They're shocking statistics, but they're not statistics, are they? They're people. And many women just like this are in churches just like ours. And we must never foolishly, unlovingly, or unkindly assume that they're not. You see, friends, we, we cannot love a people whom we cannot see. And we cannot love a people whose suffering we cannot see. If you're someone, either you call us home or you're visiting, but you've suffered in this way, can I say, God sees your hurt. He acknowledges your pain. And he grieves with you. You see, friends, when it comes to sexual abuse and violence, God is unmistakably clear in verse 7. Such a thing should not be done. Ever. Sexual abuse is an abhorrent evil, and there is no justification for it. Friends, Dina's brothers got it right. It is right for us to be grieved. It is right for us to be angry. It is right for us to be outraged at such an evil in our world. And can I say, friends, God is grieved. God is angry. God is outraged as well. 
it is why God's wrath is good news. It is why God's wrath is good news. Because if God wasn't angry like Dana's brothers, how could we ever say that he truly cares? If God remained silent like Dina's father, what kind of loving father would he be? Romans 1.18 tells us that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness. His anger, his righteous anger is being poured out against all men who harm women just like Shechem harmed Dina. Friends, we want a God of justice. We need a God of justice. A God who will be angry on our behalf and outraged at the evil committed against his children, angry at the evil committed against you and me. God's wrath is good news and his justice is good news. But what we find next is a shocking injustice. Look with me at verses 8 to 29. Hamor, Shechem's father, comes to Jacob and he starts bargaining for Dina's life. But not only hers, no, he does more than that. He demands all the daughters of Israel. He says, intermarry with us, give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. This abhorrent evil against one innocent girl is spreading to every innocent woman in the nation. It is a shocking injustice. But another danger is emerging. Well, so I wonder if you can see the threat. If Jacob gives all the daughters of Israel to Shechem, then God's people risk losing God's promise. Genesis consistently shows us that one of the greatest threats to God's promise is marrying outside his people. Abraham said it to his servant in chapter 24. Isaac said it to his Jacob in chapter 28. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Because the risk is right there in verse 16, whereas the world says to us, we'll give you our daughters, take your daughters for ourselves, live with you, and become one people. That is the great risk, isn't it? Can I, can I gently offer, friends? Some people say to me, Adam, I get it throughout Genesis. I've heard it over and over again. It's not right for me to marry outside God's people. I get it. But, but can, I, can I at least date them? Like, that's not a sin, is it? And I'm like, maybe, maybe not. But if Genesis says that marrying outside God's people is a great threat to the gospel, why would you ever want to go there or near there? Surely that's something we'd run from, not run to. In fact, in this chapter, such an act would be a shocking injustice, not just against Dina, but all the women of Israel. See, eight times in this passage, we find that same word, take, take, take. And eight times we find that other word, give, give, give. Here are a group of powerful men deciding which women to give and which women to take, and all the while, Dina says nothing. Like the women of Israel and many women today, she has no voice of her own. She is the silent victim of this shocking injustice. But here's where it's worse. Because who else is silent here? Where's Jacob? Where's the father who should be protecting her? Where is his voice for his daughter? No, he's nowhere to be heard and nowhere to be found. 
So instead, Dina's brother speak for her. But I want you to notice that what they say is a shocking injustice in itself. In verses 13 to 29, they come up with a scheme. They agree to give Dina and all of Israel's women to Shechem on one condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are. Remarkably, the Shechemites agree. But three days after being circumcised, quote, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took swords, went into the unsuspecting city and killed every male. As payback for taking their sister, they then take their flocks, their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field. Now, friends, this is hard because on the one hand, the anger that Simeon and Levi feel is entirely right. But in their anger, look at what they do. Just like Jacob in verse 13, they answer Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully. Just like their own father, they pursue what might be the right ends, but with the wrong means. They might have godly motivations, but ungodly actions. They even take circumcision, that great mark of God's promise, and use it as cover to commit a shocking injustice. Friends, why don't we be honest for a moment? If Don't we want to do the same? Doesn't something in you want to do the same? Doesn't something in you look at what Simeon and Levi do and go, sounds about right. Because if someone did to my sister what Shechem did to Dina, I would want to do exactly what Simeon and Levi did. Maybe worse. I would want the abuser to die a thousand deaths for what he did. And I suspect that many people, including many of us, feel that anyone who abuses a woman or a child should rot in hell forever. We might, in a Bible study, look at this and go, yeah, maybe Simeon and Levi went a bit overboard, but if we're honest, they're just doing what all of us are thinking. God wants us to see, friends, that we cannot defeat an abhorrent evil with a shocking injustice of our own. As hard as it is, we must trust God enough to do His will in His way. And that means, firstly, in our anger, we must not sin. In our anger, we must not sin. Psalm 4 and Ephesians 4 both tell us, be angry. Wow, that's actually helpful from God, isn't it? It could be a good, godly, and even right anger. But be angry and do not sin. Do not respond to an abhorrent evil with an injustice of our own. Trust God enough to leave judgment to the Lord. Romans 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And we get that for things that happen day to day, but not this sin, not this evil, 
not the wickedness of sexual abuse and violence. No, with this, it is so much harder, isn't it? It is so much harder to leave judgment to the Lord. But God promises that the day is coming where he will bring everything to light. The day is coming where every injustice will receive is just punishment and every perpetrator will finally be held to account. Brothers and sisters, we must trust God enough to do God's will in God's way. In our anger, we must not sin. But the gospel asks that we do even more than that. This is really hard for me to say. And I know that it will be even harder to hear. Especially if you're someone who suffered in this way. But if we are to do God's will in God's way, we must also pursue God's justice with God's grace. Genesis, if it tells us anything, is that God's way is a way of grace. Grace great enough to forgive Jacob, a heel-grabbing deceiver. Grace great enough to forgive Paul, the chief of sinners. And yes, grace great enough to forgive even the abuser. Friends, please don't misunderstand me. I am not trying to minimize the evil of what people have done or what people may have done to you. It is evil. I'm not saying that we should quickly trust someone who's abused or hurt other people. We shouldn't. Our sin has disworldly consequences. Someone who's abused women or children should not be allowed near them for a very, very long time. But the cross of Christ is where justice and mercy meet. It's where God takes the sin of our world so seriously that Jesus has to die for it. That's how evil abuse is. It costs God the life of his son. Abuse is so evil that the perpetrators deserve to die and suffer in hell for eternity. Though as do we. But instead of killing those abusers as Simeon and Levi did, or as they deserve, or as we might want. Jesus dies in their place. God made Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus dies the death that we want every abuser to suffer. And he does it so that just like Jacob, even someone who commits the most abhorrent evil can be forgiven. Jesus never says that what they did to others is okay. But in a shocking act of mercy, he doesn't make them pay for their own evil. He pays for it with his own life. He meets all the demands of justice in the place of those who have committed the most shocking of injustices and the grace he offered to Jacob is the grace he offers to you and me and them. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. This is probably the hardest thing I've ever had to say from the front. I'm not saying you have to forgive them for what they did to you right now. 
No, forgiveness can take a very long time. And the deeper the hurt, the longer the journey to forgive. But do we really believe in grace? That there is grace even for the worst of sinners? Friends, the only thing more shocking than our sin is the seemingly criminal extent of God's grace. It is grace that, let's face it, sitting in this room, I'm willing to bet most of us don't like. But if we are to do God's will in God's way, we must pursue his justice with his grace. It grates against and challenges every impulse in us to not want to take revenge. But we cannot defeat an abhorrent evil with a shocking injustice of our own. Friends, in the final two verses of this passage, I'll tell you what we see. We see something equally awful. We see a selfish fear. You see, Jacob finally speaks, but I want you to hear what he says to his sons. You've brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Did you hear who this protective or so-called protective father really cares about? Not his sons. Not his daughters. Definitely not Dina. Me. Me. And me. It sounds an awful lot like Abraham, doesn't it? Who had a fear for me put Sarah in danger before Pharaoh. It sounds a lot like Isaac, who out of fear for me, put Rebekah in danger before Abimelech. And the final word of this passage is given to Jacob's sons as they ask their father, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And they're talking about Shechem, but actually that's what Jacob's fear is doing to his own daughter, isn't it? The sin of fearful men leads to the harm of innocent women. Adam did not protect Eve. Abraham did not protect Sarah. Isaac did not protect Rebekah. And Jacob has not protected Dina. Our world will say that the problem is with toxic masculinity, any form of male power. Others will say that the problem is with complementarian doctrine, the Bible's view of male headship in the home and the church. But God says the real problem is ungodly fear that leads sinful men to abuse that power and abdicate their authority. The real problem is the ungodly fear that leads sinful men to abuse their power and abdicate their authority. God has given godly men and Christian men power and authority not to use at the cost of others and for the sake of self, but to use at the cost of self and for the sake of others. Friends, let me be clear. Men who abuse their power are not strong. They are weak. Just like Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they abdicate their authority. They relinquish their leadership. And they protect themselves over the women and children whom God calls them to love and protect. Christian men must not be passive. No, Christian men must exercise our God-given power and authority to love and protect those God calls us to. And it is on us under God to make his church the safest place on earth. 
But can I end in this way? No matter how godly a Christian man might be, no mere human can give us the love and protection we truly need. No man can do that. No person can do that. We praise God then that we have in him a better father. A better father. You see, Jacob was as bad a father as you could ever ask for. He was cowardly, fearful, selfish. This is a father who even made his own daughter pay the price for his own fear. But Jacob isn't the only disappointing father, is he? Too many fathers in our world mistreat, abuse or neglect their own children. Some Christians find it so hard to imagine how God could be our heavenly father because our earthly fathers are such a disappointment, too much like Jacob. If that's you, I, I please know this. God is the father you may have never had but always wanted. In fact, he's the father you've always had but maybe never realized. Deuteronomy says that this is a father who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Psalm 68 tells us he is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. No matter how much your earthly father may have let you down or maybe even hurt you, God is a father who never will. He will always love you and he's given you his spirit to protect you all the way to heaven. Praise God that in him we have a better father than Jacob. But we also have a better brother, a better brother. Simeon and Levi spoke for their sister, but the words they spoke on her behalf only made a bad situation infinitely worse. And though their final question in verse 31 is true, it's so full of shame, isn't it? Should he treat, it, treat our sister like a prostitute? If you've been hurt by others, that might be how you feel, ashamed. And just like Dina, who is silent throughout this chapter, you might feel that there is no one to speak for you. And even if there is nothing they say could ever take away your hurt. But there is. Friends, you and I have a better brother who speaks a better word. Jesus in Hebrews 2 in Hebrews 2 says he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He sees our shame but is not ashamed of us. He speaks for us like Simeon and Levi spoke for Dina, but he speaks words of cleansing, of healing and love. Jesus is our better brother who speaks a better word to our better father so that we who are ashamed might be adopted by him forever. In our sin and our shame, we might feel that there is no one who will speak for us. But Jesus always will. He will plead our case to our Heavenly Father. In Him, we have a better brother. And finally, in Him, we have a better husband. You see, friends, I shudder at the thought that Shechem might actually have married Dina. Shechem is a picture of all men who abuse their power, who abdicate their authority, who subjugate those whom God has called them to serve, who always take and never give. 
And can I say that as a church, we must have a welcoming heart for women and men who are divorced as a result of abuse. For too long, Christian divorcees have suffered a double punishment of abuse within marriage and judgment within church. And if that describes your experience without our church or another church, can I say, I'm, I'm really sorry. There should be no safer family than the church, for there is no better husband than the Lord Jesus. For all the husbands who take everything, Jesus is the better husband who gave us his everything. Ephesians 5 says, he gave up his own life for his bride to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Or so we grew up singing, didn't we? From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Over the last uh, few weeks, I've been talking with a number of different people about this passage. And if you're one of those men or women, thank you so much for teaching me God's word. I want to close by sharing what one of those people shared with me and is happy for me to share with us. This is what that person told me. One of the most encouraging things in processing my own suffering has been tracing through my history and seeing God reveal how he's always protecting me and bringing about his rescue plan for me, despite how grim it seemed to me at the time. Even more encouraging is the fact that Jesus is the only person who saw my sorry state in abuse and before God and sacrificed himself for me even before I was born. Abusers don't do that. This person goes on to say, not everyone is the same, but for me, knowing that Jesus is a sort of powerful, protective father, and deeply loving, sacrificial leader in one person has been instrumental to my healing. It strikes me that right at the end of the passage, Jacob finally shares his opinion on everything that's happened, and it is selfish and blaming. In Jesus, we see a leader who selflessly faces danger and dies for us, so we can be his people, safely under his leadership again. Jesus is the leader who would have rescued Dina from Shechem and protected his people, no matter what it cost him. Jacob's sons get the final say, and I think this is a way of them saying, we need a better leader than you, Jacob. It's hard to beat that, isn't it? We need a better leader than you. Friends, we have a better leader than him. In God, we have a better father who protects us. And in the Lord Jesus, we have a better brother who speaks for us. We have a better husband who died for us. Let me pray. I want you to take a moment to bring our fears, our brokenness, and our hurt before the Lord. God of all comfort, we grieve the evil of this world. 
We long for the perfection of the next. And we place our hope in you, our better brother, our better husband, and our beautiful saviour. Amen.